Only two verses this morning, believe it or not, there's enough here to cover. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You know, it makes sense that we look like our Father. We even have phrases, uh, chip off the old block, like Father, like Son. And so I asked my mom if she had any pictures of me when I was four, five, or six. So Josh, you want to click over to that slide? And I, this picture on the lower left, I'm there with my cousin. I showed that to Freddie last year, and I said, hey, Freddie, who is, who is this? And I pointed, and he said, that's me. <laughs> and so these are all me when I was, I think, four, five, and maybe seven and, yeah, what, doesn't, what gives me pause is not that Freddie looks a little bit like me. What gives me pause is that uh, Freddie might actually act like me. <laughs> we naturally resemble our fathers, but the, the thing is we naturally will act like our fathers too. And it probably... Oh, it gave my father the same pause. Did I act like that? Where did I learn that behavior? You know, if, if children do anything really well, they make you appreciate your own parents. So thank you, Mom and Dad. Paul calls us to imitate God. The Greek word is mimetes, to mimic, to mimic God our Father, but what Paul reminds us of here is that we should naturally resemble him. We should naturally reflect him because we are actually beloved children of a father. That's how we can do it. We have a whole new nature. We've been adopted as his own. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were dead, yet he's made us alive. And then this theme of he continues to give us his image He's made us in his image. And then Ephesians 4, where we've been recently, 4.23 and 24, Paul says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There it is. Created after the likeness of God. And we both have a natural resembling of our Father because he has made us in his image and we have a response ability. Put on this new self. It's created to be in the likeness of God. We have work to do. And so Paul does the same thing in in chapter 5 here. Imitate God. Mimic him. But your dearly loved children, there should be a natural response to look like God our Father. We're made in his likeness. Even before we came to know Jesus, every person... And that's true of every person in our, in our world today has been made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1. Let us, that's the, the plural where we see the fir- kind of that first expression of the plural one God that we have. Let us make man and woman in our image. We are made to be image bearers. Imago Dei, the image of God. We are to reflect him, to represent him into our world. This is who we are because of who God is and what he has done. Therefore, this is how we are to live. That's the theme uh, that Paul has been proclaiming again and again. Put on this new self. Put on the likeness of God. Paul said at the beginning of Ephesians 4, walk 
in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have received. And that, that idea of walking as a way of living, walking out our faith, continues in chapter 5 three times. Walk in love, right here in our first verses. In verse 8, walk in light. And in verse 15, walk. Be very careful then how you walk. That our life and our response to God should be forever changed because of who He is, what He's done, and what He's promised. But this is a daunting thought, isn't it? To be imitators of God. If we know anything about God, isn't that just a high and lofty thought to mimic Him? What does that look like? Is it, is it just in behavior, in His actions? It actually goes much deeper than that. It's the very character of God is what we are called to exemplify as his beloved children. The Apostle Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, He who has called you is holy. So you also be holy in all of your conduct, in all of your life, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God's holiness. And actually paraphrasing the verse, verse 17 there, what's the impetus of that? Because he is your father. God's holiness, His holy otherness, contains all the other facets and expressions of His character. Things like His righteousness, His goodness, His justice, His mercy. He is slow to anger, so His patience. He is abounding in love. All of those attributes of God are contained within His holiness, His holy otherness. And it's ultimately what we are called to These would be called his communicable attributes. It's a fancy theological term for the attributes of God, the character of God that we can emulate, that we can imitate. Uh, Certainly there are incommunicable attributes of God, the the parts of his character that we will never be. He is creator God. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful He is all-present. He is eternal. He is immutable, unchanging. And even in that, though, though we cannot cannot rightly uh, imitate all of those, we can't be those, we can reflect them to a degree. We can be creative. We can exercise sovereignty, rule, leadership. We can exercise power and influence. We can, though we... (laughs) We, don't, we have a beginning, our souls have a beginning, our origin in God, they are eternal going forward. We have hope of eternal life. Uh, immutable, maybe the most far-reaching one for us, unchanging. It seems that we change all the time, but may we be more and more constant in His character. So these are rather high thoughts, maybe daunting if we start to think about the character of God and the expression of the way He has worked into our world. Be, be mimics of this. It's, it, it's, if it could lead us to a place where I would probably crush each one of us with, I just must be more holy. I must be more God-like. I'm going I'm to work harder this week. That's mere religion. The picture that comes to mind is like gripping a handful of fine sand. You've been to that, that beautiful beach with the fine white sand and you run your fingers through it and the, the harder you squeeze that palmful of, hand, of sand, what happens? Because I don't want to lose any of it. It flows right out. In fact, the only way to truly hold that sand would be with an open cupped hand in a posture of receiving 
And ultimately, this is the best way, maybe the only way that we can come to mimic, to imitate who God is, not by trying harder, but by receiving more, by recognizing and being reminded of who we are in Christ. That's where Paul goes immediately in this whole list of these exhortations, these imperatives for the church, live like this, do this, not that. If we take those out of context and just tr- we just end up trying harder, uh, we've moved into a place of mere religion or a obedience, which may have its place. But Paul has been building his whole case here that you need to know who you are. Because out of who you are, beloved children of God, you can then live a transformed life. Be in a posture of receiving who God has called us to be, who he said that we are. Be imitators of God as beloved children. What's amazing is we are seen by God the Father the very same way that he sees Jesus his son. That's incredible. Matthew 3.17. This is at at Jesus' baptism. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, while Jesus was still speaking with his disciples who were with him, Peter, James, and John, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God the Father sees us in the same way that he sees Jesus because Jesus dwells within us if we have come to receive him. His righteousness is ours. He took our sin and replaced it with His righteousness. The great exchange, Martin Luther said. 2 Corinthians 5. That's how we are seen. And maybe the most important thing for you to hear and to know today, and this is a message unchanging. This was Paul's message to the Ephesians He kept on hammering it. The most important thing for you to know is how deeply you are loved by the eternal God and creator of this world. He loves you. He sees you as a son, as a daughter. With all the love that you've longed for and looked for in this world, that's not we are we are made that way. We're made to to need love and to give love, to be in community. But when we try to fill that love, through others' relationships, and those relationships are incomplete, at best, broken, even often abusive or abandoned. To know and to remember that we are loved this deeply by the Creator God, the Perfect Father, is transformative. Hear this. Hear this. Hear it from God your Father. You are my Son, and I am well pleased. You are my daughter. And I am well pleased. That's how you are seen. The lie of the enemy is, no, you're not. Consider what you've done, who you are. How could you possibly be loved that way? Look at Jesus. Are you anything like him? The tone of the Satan's lies have really not changed at all. To get us to doubt who God is, to distrust his promise into our life. So again, we rebuke those lies of the enemy. Those are untrue. We have the truth of the scripture right here. You are beloved children. And in you I am well pleased. And if that's all you needed to hear today, you're going to have to bear with me for a few minutes. But stay there, meditate on, on that promise and that reminder. 
That should transform how you live. Not the other way around. Not go and work harder, do more, be better, and then maybe God your Father will love you. That's the twisted lie of the enemy. For God so loved the world, He gave. He came to us. Not because we were lovely, because He loved us. Hebrews 2.11, Jesus actually goes even more personal, perhaps. For he who sanctifies us, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's those who are believing in him, we all have one source, God our Father. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus, your Savior, my Savior, the King of this world, for whom and through whom all things have been made, is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's how great God the Father is. Truly remarkable. We are called co-heirs with Jesus for all of the inheritance of our eternal God. These are staggering thoughts, I know. They're, they're high and lofty thoughts. It's why Paul wrote letter after letter to the church to remind them who they were because of who God is and what He has done. So never forget it. Whose blood flows through our veins. We won't become more and more godly by grasping harder and harder, but by receiving God's word and promise to us of how He sees us. You know, for, for Catherine and I, we were, we're working on this, but we are being very intentional when we are correcting behavior in our kids. Parents, anyone ever need to work on how you correct behavior? The, we're trying to get at the heart of our, of our children, not just correcting the behavior of their hands, so to speak. We, we even catch ourselves. Don't do that. That's, that's not how coffin kids behave. No, we've got to be very careful about that. We need to say, and we try to, that's, that's, not, how, that's not who coffin kids are. Or, Act like this because this is who coffin kids are. We need to get at identity and heart of who they've been made to be, not just correcting behavior, though there tends to be many opportunities to do that. And that's what Paul is saying here. Even though he gives exhortations and he is correcting behavior, he's, he's built the, from the beginning, this is who you are, therefore it looks like this. Very clear, that order from identity, from not just the what, but the why. We are beloved children. Imitating God should come naturally if we are spirit-filled, and yet we still have a responsibility. We know we still are to battle against the flesh and its natural desires, the world and its powerful course, and the enemy who would seek to lie and speak lies and twist God's truth. We still are opposed at many fronts, if you will. And so we have a responsibility. We are not yet who we are going to be, and yet we may grow more and more godly. This is the promise that John gives us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, in Jesus now, but what we will be has not yet fully appeared. But we know 
That when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him fully because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John teaches in the same way that Paul teaches. This is who you are because of who God is. Therefore, live like this. Purify yourselves. Respond. The the Apostle James would, would teach the same way. True faith is put into action. It must flow. And it's as if they all had the same teacher. Paul, Peter, James, they all learned it from the same place. Paul makes very clear here what we are called to, or should we say, who we are called to. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does it look like to be imitators of God? Let's make this now more personal if you haven't already connected those dots. It looks like Jesus. To mimic God, to imitate him, looks like Jesus. Colossians 1.19, For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God presents himself, he reveals himself through Jesus. The one who came and dwelt amongst us. Who lived among us. That we would know what it looks like to live life fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. We have hope. It's not as high, it's not as high and lofty of a thought to look toward Jesus and to see Him and know Him and follow Him. That's what it means to be a disciple. This happened, by the way, I hope you know this, at the incarnation. Not at His crucifixion, not at the resurrection, not not at the transformation, transfiguration on the mountain, not even at His baptism when the Holy Spirit came like a dove and descended on Him. This happened. All of God's fullness dwelt in Jesus from the womb. From Mary's womb. That's the incarnation when God became flesh. Right? Jesus added to his divinity humanity, not the other way around. Why is that important? That Jesus was fully God from Mary's womb? Because I think too often we overlook the life of Jesus for the hope that it is to us. Even some of the earliest creeds, the Apostles' Creed, for example, says this, all true true statements, but notice what it skips over. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. He's our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and buried. And then on it goes. It skips over 33 years or so, give or take, Best estimates about how long Jesus walked on this earth. And it's true that we don't know much from those first 30, but those last three we know quite a bit, thanks to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the traditions of the early church. But we can also conclude some things from those first 30 years, at least conceptually. What we know is that Jesus grew up as any other Jewish boy did, studying and memorizing the Torah, learning his father's trade, which was carpentry. He grew up with a bunch of younger brothers and sisters. So you can imagine his home just as chaotic as any home with a number of young children in it. It's likely, many would, 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 would assume or come to believe that Joseph, his father, died while he was relatively young. The last time we see Joseph pictured is when he was 12 
when they go to the temple in Jerusalem, that would be Luke chapter 2, considering what Joseph did to stay with Mary, it would seem unlikely that Joseph left them. And if that did happen, then imagine the pain and the tragedy that would have hit that family. But considerable pain and tragedy if he also died while they were young and left Mary to raise these children. Either way, what's the point? It proves that Jesus lived life and experienced life as we do, full of joys and sorrows. Growing up in wisdom and stature, learning, living in a family with brothers and sisters and expectations. By the way, that reminds me, last time we see him is at 12 until he's actually fully bearded at 30. Jesus went through puberty. Wouldn't you like to know how he did that and remained sinless? Hebrews 4, how do I know that? Hebrews 4.15 tells us, We do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, the weaknesses of, of our flesh and humanity. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted, just as we are. Yet he was without sin. How incredible is that? How hopeful that whatever you're going through, whatever you're tempted to do or to believe that is opposed to God's will and word, Jesus too had to battle that temptation. And yet he was sinless his whole life. Unique to say the least. And yet his family didn't, didn't know that he was God, that he was Messiah, that he was the God-man. He did not lord over them his perfection, flaunt it in any way. If, if he did, I guess he would not be sinless any longer. We see, the, we see him in his ministry and his, his mother and his brothers coming to him and actually trying to, to get him to be quiet, to stop what he's doing. He's bringing actually shame upon their whole family name because he's, he's blaspheming. They, they did not get it, and yet all of his brothers came to follow him and worship him as the Messiah. You who have a brother, if you can convince them that you are the Messiah, that is impressive. But in, in his growing up years, he was faithful. He was a servant. But he was not expressive in his divinity until his baptism, until the Holy Spirit came upon him in power. And then he began to live differently, didn't he? We know that the... the at the wedding feast in Cana was his first supernatural miracle. So he did not tap into his Holy Spirit power in a way that would be manifest into the world until that moment, until, he, until it was the, the fullness of time had come. Then he began to preach, gather disciples, manifest the Spirit's presence and power in signs and wonders to authenticate the message that he was proclaiming. That God had come into the world to save sinners. He was going to deliver, rescue, heal, and redeem. And he was going to establish a whole new covenant in his blood. So why is this important? I see the glossy eyes at this point. No wonder we just skip over that. Okay, it's just, how does this make any difference to me? It makes an absolutely significant difference in your life. To be imitators of God, to be, to be mimics of God is to know Jesus and who He is. And I think one of, the, one of the lies of the enemy that we have 
come to believe is that how, how did Jesus do these things while on earth? How did he manifest supernatural powers, drive out demons, preach in the way he preached? Well, he was God. And while that is true, to say that means we need to reinterpret all of the commands that we have to imitate God, to be like Jesus, to live like Him. When Jesus says in John chapter 14, how far am I? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. How could Jesus say that to his disciples? Command them to live with this kind of faith if the answer is to tap into your divinity in order to do these things. Not possible. To be imitators of God, to live as Jesus lived on earth, is to live fully dependent on the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus came and did. He poured himself into humanity to walk in life facing all forms of temptation in the power of the Spirit, trusting only the Holy Spirit to lead through him. And that's what we are called to. We don't tap into our divinity. We never will be. We tap into another who is divine within us. And Jesus said it was better that he would go to heaven in order that he would send the Holy Spirit to his church. And that's how we are called to live. That's what we are called to mimic, to be like him. It's so vital for us. Alan Hirsch said, whatever we might know of God is qualified by how he has revealed himself in the historical and risen Jesus. If God's people fail to resemble, to act, and to sound like Jesus, something must be deeply wrong. But if our conclusion is, well, Jesus did all these things, this min- he ministered in all of these ways because he was God, then we will be very we will fall very short of what we have truly been called to represent into this world. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to live. Now Paul, he did speak of power to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. The same power that was at work in Jesus to raise him from the dead is at work in you. Now imagine, here he is saying, imitate God. Imitate God, live like Jesus. It looks like this. Imagine what he could have said in power, in might, in healing, in transformation. I mean, he could have gone to any number of places as examples. But where does he go? To the essence of who God is. Walk in love. That is the greatest expression of who God is. The only way you can truly love like that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. First on the list of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Because it's not just what God does and what He shows, it's who He is. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so what does that love look like? It looks like Jesus. Specifically, love gives, love sacrifices, love pours itself out. It's the image that Paul uses here when he says, like a fragrant offering. An aroma pleasing to God. 
Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship, pleasing in the sight of God. So what's primarily in view here? It is not giving ourselves over to death as a sacrifice unto death, though we are called to be willing to walk that way. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. When Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me, we have to be willing unto death to give all. But that's not what Paul is hinting at here that would have been known at least by his Jewish hearers with a history of the Old Testament, which is probably lost on us also. Uh, how well do you know Leviticus 1-3? through 3? If you try to read through the, ever try to read through the entire Bible, I'm going to start at Genesis and I'm going to get to the end. And you get to Leviticus and you stop, right? Every time you're just like, I, I got the story. I mean, Genesis and Exodus, there were some exciting, crazy things that happened and I got to Leviticus and for some reason I got derailed. Leviticus 1 through 3 starts just prescribing in super detail what, the sacrificial system. By the way, when you know that it's all been fulfilled by Jesus... You can start looking on a treasure hunt for him to see the ways that it applies to us and maybe get through that. But in Leviticus 1-3, through is described not first atoning sacrifices, but three other kinds of sacrifices that are called fragrant offerings and pleasing aromas in the sight of God, burnt offerings, grain offerings, and peace offerings. And why is this important? Because these, are the, these were free will offerings that people brought being compelled out of worship and thanksgiving to God their Father. And that's what's called pleasing, a fragrant aroma in, in, in God's nostrils, so to speak, because they are brought in worship For God so loved the world, he gave. The response of love is sacrifice. The picture of that love is giving. The picture of it is fulfilled in the incarnation, not first in the crucifixion. When Jesus was poured out into this world, he emptied himself into the form of a servant. Philippians 2 John says again, 1 John 4, 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest, it was made known most clearly that God sent His Son into the world that we might live through Him to represent God, to be imitators of Him, is to love like Jesus in the form of giving, in the form of being compelled to pour ourselves out to willingly lay aside all rights, privileges, comforts, conveniences, securities, to not only live among a people who are lost and of the world, but to live as them to the degree that we don't compromise our faith. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Wherever we are being planted into, where we live, where we work, where we learn, where we play, are we pouring ourselves out, taking the form of a servant, because of love we give. 
The great 20th century poet T.S. Eliot said this, The greatest proof of Christianity for others is not how far a man can logically analyze his reasons for believing. Not how you can explain it, articulate it, how many verses you can quote, how many spiritual laws you know. No. The greatest proof is how far in practice he will stake his life to those beliefs. There's a reason why our world is just as open and eager to explore who Jesus was, but wants nothing to do with the church as a whole. Because when they look to the church, they do not see a life that is any different than what they see in the world. And if the church is not a building and is not an institution, but is God's people, then by the way that we love, this is what Jesus said, by your love for one another, this world will know that you're my followers. That's what should transform us. He has poured himself out. Romans 5, 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I'm not going to end this sermon with a, so get out there and try harder. Grip that sand. Give more. Do more. I'll leave it to the Holy Spirit. If He is convicting you, you need to change something, do something different, do something more, give something more, follow the Spirit. Where I'm trying to lead us is to a posture to say, before I go out there and work harder, I'm here to receive Because if I am not naturally pouring out my life in love as Jesus did, have I even come to receive it? Do I even know it? Lord, help me. Bring me back to you. Help me see you again. Not just on the cross and through the resurrection. And we are reminded of those things at this table every single week when we come. Vital for us. Vital. Crucial. But Jesus, let me see you in your life. How you lived amongst us. Are we following this Jesus? And Jesus said very, very clearly, he said, you know what? A fox is better off than you because at least a fox has a hole he can crawl into at the end of the day. To follow me means being willing to give up all things to go into any place, to pour yourself out. And by the way, that's where true life actually happens. The end of it is not just sacrifice. The end of it is worship, is joy, is purpose, is satisfaction, is knowing that we are living in such a way where God our Father says, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. That never changes But in you, I am well pleased. What a high calling we have. But at first, it's a calling back to him. To who he is. To how he lived. And the very same power that he drew from while on earth, the power of the Holy Spirit, has been poured out to us. It is available to us to walk in that freedom and that hope.
And reminding again, John 14, 12, Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works I do, and greater works than these. Many have tried to interpret that and explain that. How could we possibly do something greater than Jesus? Jesus himself, probably speaking in a, in a, in a broad sense, greater as far as scope, greater throughout history, more. Not just isolated and located to one little place in the world, but to reach to the ends of the earth. But that same source and that same power is given to you, the power of the Holy Spirit. So we say, thank you, Jesus. Forgive us where we believe that if you you were still walking this earth, that would be better for us, the church. Your words and your promise were, it would be better for us for you to go and reign at the right hand of the Father and to send the Holy Spirit. So we take you at your word, but may we know it and may we know you. May we be imitators of God. We can love the way he's loved. We can pour ourselves out because he poured himself out. We can forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. We can give because Jesus has given all. It's who we are because of who God is and what he has done. I'll invite the team to come and to lead us in response. As they do come, let me pray a prayer that I wrote out, and then I'll lead us into some of our response abilities. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us to be imitators of you as you point us to Jesus and God your Father. To pour out our lives in love expressions, even this morning, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This coming week, send us as your ambassadors into the fields to extend and represent you, your love, your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, which you have poured into us. May he overflow from us. Amen.